Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning we are going to take a, a break from Isaiah uh, because I want to look um, I want to look at the book of Philippians chapter four. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to put your finger there. Several weeks ago, you'll remember if you've been with us that we preached through Isaiah fifty eight and fifty nine. And those two chapters um, identified marks of persevering faith. Uh, we singled out three distinguishing marks of persevering faith, and we contrasted that with performative religious experience. And we noted from Isaiah that persevering faith is, among other things, um, sincere and not superficial. It is sincere, not superficial. And I thought we would kind of build on that theme because that is something that Paul talks about in Philippians as well. Because the reality of hypocrisy when it comes to devotion to Christ, isn't a, that's not a new phenomenon. That's not something that's an issue of the modern age or something like that. It's been an ongoing challenge for, for God's people in every age of redemptive history from, from the very beginning. It is easy we have to confess it's easy to portray yourself as somebody you're not when you're in front of other believers. We can do that. Um, you learn the right words to say. You learn how, you know, you, you can kind of discern what subjects can and, and can't be talked about if there's some situational awareness. Um, you can become an expert at, at smiling and acting as though everything is coming up roses and kittens. You can even be busy serving other Christians in the church Involving yourself in ministry and and uh, and drawing the accolades and encouragement and uh, and praise of other believers, um, you can be doing all of those things in short bursts and look very spiritual and look very godly, but at the same time that can still that can be a faux spirituality. It's superficial. Jesus addressed these kinds of spiritual imposters. All throughout his earthly ministry, as you look at the gospel records, there's examples all over the place. And the people that he directed his ire at the most were obviously the Pharisees. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 6, Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written in Isaiah 29 and verse 3, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Of course, the Pharisees were these uber-religious folks that uh, the Israelites in Jesus' day uh, looked up to, and they loved to parade their external righteousness before the people to show them how godly they were. Um, but as we see in the Jesus' indictment of them, they inwardly were as spiritually lifeless as the most rebellious and Gentile pagans of their day. And he minced no words with these men who plied their kind of superficial spirituality on the people. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. And verse 27 of Matthew 23 says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, But inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men. He says, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These individuals, these Pharisees, they claim to be the true Jews. In fact, they thought of themselves as the only true Israelites. 
but they were play-acting devotion to God by their external adherence to man-made traditions. Matthew 23, he says, they love to do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces, he says, and being called rabbi by men. Jesus made it clear that superficial spirituality doesn't fool him, and it provoked, as we see in the Gospels, his harshest criticism and condemnation. To pronounce woe over somebody is to, as Jesus does here, pronounce everlasting eternal judgment upon them. So, I mean, he refers to the the Pharisees as sons of hell, and those who follow in their hypocrisy is twice as much sons of hell. So, all to say, faux spirituality is a serious issue, um, and it's one that we must be on guard against in our own hearts, in our own lives. Now that said, I also understand, and the scriptures make clear, that as Christians, even genuine born-again believers, to one degree or another, we all fall short of God's expectations, this side of heaven. There's always going to be an incongruity between what we know and affirm with our mouth and what we live out in our lives. Um, th- th- there's always a, an application debt that's owed because we, we know the word of God and, and we understand it. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not, it's not who Jesus is taking aim at. We're not talking about the imperfect followers of Jesus who are striving day after day to obey him, to put to death the deeds of the flesh because they long to glorify God with their lives. They want to honor him with their, with their words. And they're just weak and, and, and the flesh is... Is, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's, that's not who Jesus is taking aim at here. What we're talking about and what we cannot become complacent with is a superficial external devotion to Jesus that presents yourself as one thing in front of God's people, perhaps on a Sunday morning, while living in open contradiction to the truth in all other contexts. That isn't... That is impossible. That kind of theatrical hypocrisy is, it shows that one has never tasted of the saving grace of God and has no claim on Christ and his kingdom. So the question is, might pop into your mind is, I'm not sure then how do I know the difference between true spirituality and, and a false spirituality? Because, I mean, genuine Christians do spiritual things, right? They're going to they're gonna serve in the church, and they are going to conduct themselves in a certain way. They're going to they're gonna serve God's people. I mean, God says he's prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in. So how do we, you know, we should be doing good things, good works, and, and, and our lives should look different. But the, but the scripture also says that hypocrites do all the same things that he talks that Jesus uses an example of tares growing amongst wheat. So how do we tell one from the other? How can I, and more important than how do I see that in others, but how do I know that in my own heart? How do I know that I am living a truly spiritual life and not parading around hypocrisy? Because if unsaved sinners can, as Jesus said, prophesy in the Lord's name and cast out demons and perform many miracles. In other words, if unbelievers can do spiritual things and still wake up in eternity 
to the shocking declaration of Jesus saying, depart from me, I never knew you. How can I be confident that I am indeed living out a truly spirit-filled life? And that is what Paul is going to instruct us in from our text this morning in Philippians chapter 4. He's going to instruct us in what does true spirituality actually look like? What are its distinguishing marks? He's going to give us more distinguishing marks. We looked at several in Isaiah. Here we have a different set to look at to help us discern what are the distinguishing marks of true spiritual, excuse me, true spirituality. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, the final chapter of this short letter, Paul is bringing the overarching themes of the whole book, he's bringing them kind of to a conclusion. And he's calling them back to steadfastness in verses 1 to 3, he's calling them to unity in verse 2, and he's calling them to, uh, for them to contend for the gospel in verse 3. But beginning in verse 4, uh, Paul is starting to come around the final bend, if you will, in this letter, and he's pressing toward the finish line. And these verses, beginning in verse 4 and following, in rapid succession, Paul begins to shoot off these exhortations, these commands. And, uh, and he's urging them to make greater progress in their faith. You see Paul do this in other letters too. He does it at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5 uh, in verses 12 to 22. He just gives a laundry list of exhortations. He does the same thing in 2 Corinthians 13. The commands that he gives here and all the rhetorical flourishes that come with it at the end would have cued his listeners in, His because re- these are primarily heard. These letters are going to be read. It cued them in that Paul is getting to the end, that what he was about to say was, uh, was about to draw to a close, and now he's asking them to apply those things that he's talked about to their own lives, hoping that, again, that, that they will be clear, that they will stick and begin to make real progress. Now, you can break verses 4 to 9 down into two sets of exhortations. Set number 1 is in 4 to 7, and that has to do with true spirituality. Paul's exhortations here, he urges you and I, toward a spirit-filled devotion to Christ. And that has varying marks and distinguishing characteristics. But you get to verses 8 and 9, there's another set, and that zeroes in more on how we think and how we behave. These twin concerns of thinking and behaving then build like a, you could think of it like an ethical framework through which um, we can move forward in the Christian life, imitating Paul and ultimately imitating Christ. But what, we're, what we want to look at this morning is just four to seven, which lay out five distinguishing marks of true spirituality. Five distinguishing marks of true spirituality. And they are joy, graciousness, prayer, thanksgiving, and peace. We're going to look at each one of those in some detail. Joy, graciousness, prayer, thanksgiving, and peace. 
See, for Paul, these things represent the genuine fruits of the Spirit in your life and in my life. They are part and parcel to the kingdom of God. Romans uh, 14 and verse 7, Paul says, The kingdom of God doesn't consist of eating and drinking. It does not, it's not in its essence about external performance or, or rule-keeping and law, uh, external uh, superficial law-keeping. But what he's talking about is, he says, the, the, the kingdom of God consists in, in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's about having a genuinely spirit-filled life, which is increasingly congruent on the inside as it is on the outside. And when someone has been made a new creation through faith in Jesus, right, there are marks that identify that change because it's a spiritual transformation that happens by the grace of God. And the first mark, right out of the gate in verse 4, that tells, uh, alerts one to true spirituality is joy. It is this, this um, spirit of joy. He says, uh, he says it earlier in chapter 3 in verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And he says it again here in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. This is Emphatic, like he's he's making a, a, an emphatic point as he goes through this letter. Joy, unmitigated, unhindered joy is, or at least should be, the distinguishing mark of a believer in Jesus Christ. So, that said, long-faced Christianity, which has at times throughout church history been a kind of a, a expression of piety or seen as an expression of piety and devotion to God, that's foreign to Paul. That is not what, if you can't read Philippians and come away, that that is somehow a mark of true spirituality. There ought not to be any Eeyores in the kingdom of God, right? Paul is a theologian of joy. And Philippians is referred to as the epistle, the letter of joy. Joy, though, isn't the same as happiness. happiness. Happiness is entirely circumstantial. It's situational. You, 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 know, you get an unexpected raise at work, promotion, you, you travel on a much-anticipated vacation, you spend some time catching up with a good friend. Like Those are things that bring happiness into our lives, things we get to relish and, 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 and enjoy. Joy, biblical joy, is distinct from happiness in that it is situationally agnostic. What do I mean by that? I mean, it isn't circumstantial, rising and falling with kind of the providential waves of life in this, in this world. Rather, joy is anchored on one's relationship with Jesus Christ, and thus it is an abiding, deeply spiritual quality of one's life. Joy, then, is the exclusive possession of those who've put their trust in Jesus and have been born again. The world doesn't have joy, the way the scriptures define it. The world can have happiness. The world can have moments of, of exhilaration. But the world, apart from Christ, cannot have joy. Not in the sense that Paul speaks about it here. In many ways, 
Charles Wesley captures the essence of joy um, in the hymn, or uh, we know it, you've probably sung it many times, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Listen to the first line in each stanza of that hymn. It encapsulates the foundation of a Christian's joy. For example, in verse 1, it says, Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Okay, it's centered on Christ. Verse 2, the Lord and Savior reigns, the God of truth and love. Verse 3, his kingdom cannot fail. Our Lord, the judge, shall come. Or stanza 4, rejoice in glorious hope. He rules o'er earth and heaven. These are the things that are only true for those who have bowed the knee to Christ. They're not true of unbelievers. But if you have given your heart to him, they are objectively true no matter what happens to you in this life. Psalm 28 verse 7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. And here's the implication. Therefore, my heart exalts. Exalt with you. Meaning, to be filled with joy, effusive joy, and with my song I shall thank him. So, so who God is in relation to us then becomes the foundation of joy, exaltation. Joy then, when it's present, manifests itself. It shows itself in rejoicing, which is not an option, but a command, no matter whatever else is going on. That's important to understand. Like I said, it's situationally agnostic. You can have joy, Paul says, in the midst of sorrow. Right? He says, I can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Second Corinthians. So, joy can be there while other not joyful things are happening in our lives. Whatever else is going on. So, for the Philippians, the whatever else includes opposition and suffering at the hands of other citizens who honored Caesar and not Jesus as Lord. Nevertheless, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. For Paul, the whatever else that was going on in his life was at this time, as he wrote this letter, being detained in a Roman prison and having other gospel preachers kicking him, so to speak, when he was down. Chapter 1, remember? They were claiming that he was in prison because he was a sinner. And that's why he was under persecution because he, he was, he was a, you know, they were using that to advance themselves and to tear Paul down, which was wrong and, and incredibly hurtful. And yet in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, In this I rejoice, his being slandered by other Christian leaders. Yes, he says, and I will rejoice. Joy, then, is a defiant nevertheless, which sets itself full stop against the fickleness of our flesh and the ups and downs of our circumstances. And it ought to be visible to other Christians. It ought to be visible to others. Even in the midst of trials, it stands up and turns into the wind of various challenges face first. It does not bow down. James 1 verse 3, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Count it or reckon it is a mental accounting of the situation as joy because of God's grace. 
So disillusioned, downcast, despondent Christianity is a contradiction of terms. It shouldn't be. And no matter what is happening to you or around you in this life, Christ never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that, we can have joy. And that joy should be evidenced in our countenance. It should be evidenced in our interactions with one another. It should be something that we can carry with us, even while we suffer, even while we experience heartache and sorrow and difficulty, we can have joy. So true spirituality is marked out by joy in our hearts. Second, true spirituality is marked out by graciousness. Graciousness. Look at verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. This uh, second command really follows from the first, even though it doesn't seem like it. It just seems like statement, statement, statement. But there is a logical flow here. It just isn't stated explicitly. Paul's saying, as you and I continually rejoice in the Lord, even in the face of opposition, in the, in the face of suffering, what others ought to see in us is gentleness, graciousness. What is, this, what is meant by this term? Well, the term graciousness is is a difficult one to pin down to just maybe one English word. It's sometimes translated as mercy, suggesting the meaning of kind of gentle forbearance, where the emphasis is on gentleness or kindness um, uh, in, in one's disposition. But it also has the idea of sweet reasonableness and generosity and charity toward the faults of others. You can illustrate it like this. Imagine you're a teacher grading papers. And one student scored a 90 and the other scored a 70%. But you know that the student who got the 90 earned that score under ideal conditions. It's because you know them, you're a good teacher. They studied. um, They had all the books they needed. The leisure, they had the leisure to work at their own pace. And you know about their situation at home. So they're able to focus on the material because there's peace at home. That's student level A. But then student B, you know, that student scored a 70, and they're also struggling to pay for school. And they're also working a full-time job. And they were recently sick and missed several lectures. And they share their tiny apartment with several other family members, so it's difficult to study uninterrupted, uninterrupted. You just know this about them. Justice demands the student who weathered the difficult circumstances still receive a 70 because that's what the paper, that's what they earned. But graciousness scores the paper higher. Does that make sense? Graciousness is the quality of someone who knows that what justice demands isn't the last word, but rather chooses not to lay down the hammer of the law. This, by the way, is how God deals with us as his children. And it's how we ought to deal with others. And Paul says our gentleness ought to be known to all people. That is, to those on the outside, including those who oppose us. In fact, I, I, I believe Paul is, means to specifically elevate this idea of those who oppose us that we are to be gracious to those who stand in opposition. What's he saying? He's saying that the world should know you for your gentle forbearance. The Lord should know you for being gracious toward other believers and especially toward the world. 
First Peter 2 and chapter 2, uh, verse 23, Peter says we're to be like Christ who, quote, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You know, when someone reviles us, justice demands what? That we speak up, that we defend ourselves, that we reach back. But graciousness chooses not to. Graciousness chooses not to go down the path of law. Graciousness doesn't extract the pound of flesh or even an ounce of flesh. It's interesting, this term graciousness is set in contrast to unreasonableness. Uh, just a few verses earlier, if you go back in 1 Peter 2 and verse 18, where Peter instructs servants to be submissive to their masters and not just to masters who are good and gracious, that's that term, but he said even to those who are unreasonable, who are unjust, literally those who are crooked. So the, the point is this, as Christians we are called to suffer Injustice. We are called to suffer unjustly. As followers of Christ, we're commanded to patiently endure people who we believe to be unreasonable, those whom we believe to be unjust, crooked. So a good diagnostic question we need to ask ourselves as we think about this is this, can I be wronged? Can I be wronged? In other words, can I really be sinned against and still not respond with sinful anger and bitterness and scorn? Can I, as Peter says, bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly? Because that is what Christ demands of his followers. True spirituality reasons that it is far better to suffer wrong than to inflict wrong. We're to let our graciousness and gentleness be known. It has the idea of being recognized by all men. So it should be obvious. No reviling, no threatening, and so forth. Paul, uh, to Titus, captures this really um, objectively in chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Right? And you say, well, where does gentleness like this come from? How do you and I lay hold of graciousness and forbearance like this and not strike back? He gives us the reason, the motivation in verse 3. For we also... Once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It comes the motivation for being gracious comes from a clear-headed understanding of how much gentleness, how much kindness, how much mercy the Lord has shown us and continues to show us every day. This is the mark of true spirituality, a life of graciousness, gentleness to, the degree, to such a degree that it's known by all. A third mark of spirituality True spirituality is prayerfulness, prayer. 
Look at the end of verse 5. So we go back to uh, Philippians 4. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. He says, the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You think, what is going on at the end of verse 5? He just has this statement, the Lord is near. What is that? Why is that there? Well, you could think of it almost like a hinge between verses 5 and 6. Kind of gets you there. The Philippians lived in a hostile culture. They, they knew that God wasn't exalted in their midst, and they were in some measure being persecuted for that. But Paul reminds them that the true Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, is near. He's near. He is both with us in the sense that his eternal presence is always with us. He's omnipresent. But also, he dwells in the hearts of his people through the Spirit of God. So he's, he is near us in that sense, but he's also near in the sense that his return is, is imminent. And at any time, he could come back no, with no man knowing the day or the hour. So he's near in terms of time. He's near in terms of space. And we said uh, a couple of weeks ago that the nearness, that, hi, that idea in Revelation that, that God is near has the idea of being so close that the impacts of his presence are felt now in our lives. But here, Paul uses near, this adjective, adverb, excuse me, near, he uses it um, ambiguously, and I think that's int intentional. It has both a spatial and a temporal connotation. Our future vindication is close at hand. For, we've been studying that already. The Christ the Lord will return. He is establishing his kingdom. Isaiah is teaching us about that. At the same time, Paul is encouraging them to prayer in the midst of present distress. Because why? The Lord is near. He is near to those who call on him now. Psalm 145 verse 18, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. So, just as Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, Paul invites kingdom citizens to live here without anxiety because their Heavenly Father knows them, He cares for them, He is near to them. He will never leave us nor forsake us. The Lord is near. And so, the implication is, be anxious for nothing. Apprehension and fear mark the life of the unbelieving, the untrusting, because for them, this life is all there is. As far as they're concerned, and, and, and this life is, is a world of uncertainty. You never know what's coming around the bend. Paul says, for the believer, in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. In everything here means in all the details and circumstances of life. In situations where the world becomes anxious and worries and frets, you and I are to submit our cares to the Lord. We pray. And then when we do that, we acknowledge that we are dependent on him, that we are trusting in him. First Peter 5, cast your cares on, uh, cast your anxiety, he says, on him. And the reason is because he cares for you as a believer. It's not that we don't, as Christians, have anxieties and fears. We do. And sometimes those things are profound. But when those fears and anxieties rise up, they tur we turn them over to the Lord in prayer. 
We, we acknowledge them. We fight back against them. We run to the throne of grace. This is a mark of true spirituality, a disciplined life of prayer that acknowledges that we live in utter dependence on God and trust in him for everything. There's a fourth important mark of spirituality here in the text, and that is thanksgiving. This accompanies true prayer is thanksgiving. As we recall God's goodness and mercy to us, we will be rescued from the many pitfalls of an ungrateful soul. Right? We, we, we get rescued from a sinful preoccupation with our, our problems and our priorities. We're rescued from a, a temptation to forget God's gracious dealings with us in the past. We're rescued from a selfish lack of consideration for others. We forget sometimes, it's worth noting, that a lack of gratitude is really a, a stepping point, stepping stone to idolatry. First, uh, Romans 1, Paul says, For even though they, unbelievers, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So thanksgiving, giving thanks, is a mark of an unbeliever. Thanksgiving is an explicit, then, acknowledgement of our creatureliness. It's an explicit acknowledgement of our dependence on God in all things. It's a recognition that everything we have comes from him. And we affirm that to him and to others. We understand that everything comes from his sovereign goodness. I love, I love Paul's just, he just puts the screws to the Corinthian church. He says, what, did you, what do you have that you didn't receive? In chapter 4, verse 7. And the obvious, the obvious answer is Nothing. You received it all. He says, and if you have received it, why do you act as if you have not received it? And that's what we need to recognize. Thankfulness, thanksgiving, keeps us from getting, to put it in the vernacular, too big for our britches. It keeps us from forgetting who we are before an infinitely holy God. We're just creatures. We're just dust. Everything we have has been given to us. Think about what God's given you. It's all from him. Thanksgiving doesn't mean, though, mindlessly saying thank you all the time. That's not what we're talking about here, although you should say thank you. <laughs> it's not, you know, polite people, good manners, don't mean they're thankful people. So it's not the external, thank you, thank you, thank you. But it's a true recognition and thankfulness in your heart that also verbalizes itself to others. It's a posture of petitioning God and living humbly with one another. A fifth mark of true spirituality is, real, is, is really a result, call it a result of a spirit-filled um, life that is marked out by prayer and thanksgiving, and that is peace. A true mark of spirituality, a fifth mark, is peace. Look at verse 7. It says, Be anxious for nothing, by prayer, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now Paul deliberately connects 
the peace of God with this exhortation to pray in trusting submission with thankfulness. And, and what he's doing here is essentially offering us an alternative to anxiety. This is what you can have instead. So it's both an affirmation and a promise. As you submit all your circumstances of life to God in prayer with a thankful spirit, what you can expect from God is that his peace will guard your hearts and minds. That's the result. And peace, like joy, is a spirit-wrought attitude. It originates with God, and it is only known amongst those who, who belong to him. So again, it's the exclusive possession of believers. The world doesn't have God's peace. It cannot have God's peace. But as believers, we can. We can. And he says, not just any peace, it's a peace that surpasses all comprehension. You say, what does that mean? Does that mean God's peace is so crazy, ridiculously peaceful, it's just unknowable? Is that what he's talking about there? No. I don't believe that's what Paul's trying to say. I believe he's saying God's peace defies the natural man's way of perceiving and reasoning about the world. It's beyond all comprehension. In other words, God's peace defies the logic of the unbelieving mind, which is constantly swirling with anxiety and fear and uncertainty. There's no calm for rebelliousness. There's no calm for the unbelieving heart because it cannot rest on anything higher than itself. There's nothing else to, you're, you're building on, as Jesus says, you're building your house on the sand. But for you and I who lean upon the good purposes of our infinite, holy, sovereign, powerful God in every difficulty, we can experience what Paul says here is the peace of God. The st- Isaiah, talking about the glorious vision that he had about the future in Isaiah 26 verse 3, says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace, wholeness, because he trusts in you. That's building your life on the rock and not the sand. And that's incomprehensible to someone who doesn't have Christ in their life. It defies human analysis, human insights, human understanding, human scheming, human devices, human solutions. It doesn't compute. He says the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension here, he says it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul takes peace and treats it like a person. He personifies peace here, and he uses a military metaphor to describe its activity upon our hearts and lives. The Philippians lived in a garrison. Philippi was a garrison town. They would have been familiar with the, uh, a Roman sentry looking over and protecting the city, maintaining their watch, keeping guard over the people. And Paul says in the same way, God's peace will garrison and protect your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what it does. So Proverbs 18 verse 10 kind of captures this reality. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. That's the peace of God guarding your heart and your mind. And that happens in what sphere? In Christ Jesus. It doesn't happen anywhere else. It can't happen anywhere else. And these are the marks 
of true spirituality. Joy, graciousness, prayer, thanksgiving, peace. Church attendance, giving, engaging in various ministries, meeting the material needs of others, those are all good and necessary things, but they don't, they don't mark you out as a Christian. Unbelievers can do those things. A, a true Christian should do those things, but they don't in and of themselves distinguish you as having been born again. Those things, like external things, can be done by those who are saved and by those who are self-deceived. But do you have joy? Do you have, uh, is your life marked out by gentleness? It, are, are you um, conducting yourself in prayerful dependence on God day by day? Is your posture one of regular thanksgiving? And is the peace of God ruling in your hearts? These are the marks of true spirituality. And this, is, this is how, to go back to Isaiah, this is how we're to live in the in-between time as believers. And as Peter says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we want. It's not that these things are going to be true of us in every context, in every way, but they should be ours and they should be increasing as we walk with Christ week by week, month by month, hopefully year by year. And that's more for our knowledge than for anyone else's so that we would know him and walk with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder, this encouragement, and this instruction. We, uh, we confess, Lord, we, we are not what we ought to be, but if we are in Christ, we are not what we once were. And so help us, Lord, to uh, take these things and apply them. Help us to walk in the Spirit, because as the Scripture says, as our hearts are filled with the truth, we walk by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of our flesh. We won't be joyless. We won't be harsh. We won't be self-sufficient. We won't be prideful and, and, uh, and have expectations of others as if um, we're owed anything. We won't be entitled. And we certainly won't be tossed here and there by the anxieties and fears of the world and the circumstances. So, Lord, help us to do these things Lord, every command in Scripture is also a promise that you, that these things can really be true of us as believers. So we need to see them not just as commands that sort of wag, our fin wag their fingers at us, but as promises from a good and loving Savior that we can have these things and we can be these things and we can have them in greater measure. Lord, empower us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.